Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today's guest is Miss Debbie Peterson. Why don't you uh, tell us about yourself? Well, I am a former mayor. I'm taking notes here on adding context because I love that name. Uh, former mayor of a small town in California and uh, also former council member, forming plant, former planning commissioner and um, businesswoman at heart, an entrepreneur at heart. I've always owned my own businesses. And I, I found when I was elected that uh, there was a lot of corruption. And I found it because people came to me about it. And so um, after working within the system for 15 years or so, I realized that it probably was time to work outside the system if I really wanted to finish it off, <laughs> finish it off in a good sense. Right. And um, and so I, I I wrote the book about what I'd found. And um, and and I'm in the process now of publishing a couple of more that say, okay, if, if you've identified that corruption or if that corruption worries you or if you just want really good government, here's how to fast track it and get it done quickly. So that's who I am right now. That's what I'm working on. Still still running three different businesses. But um, at the end of the day, I think <laughs> where I'm most interested right now is, is writing, writing and speaking. I read your first book, The Happiest Corruption, and... It, it reads like a movie. It reads like something straight out of Hollywood, which is, I guess, kind of fitting that you're in California. Yeah, um, not too far. Yeah. <laughs> how did you first kind of get involved with what was going on there? What brought you to kind of get into the, the local politics scene there? Well, thank you for saying that it reads like something out of Hollywood because that's really where I wanted to go with it. It's, it is all true, absolutely true crime story. And I wanted it to be interesting enough to grab people enough that they would say, oh, oh gosh, I'd like to take the next step. So thank you. <laughs> you confirmed that at least for you it worked, but I think you're already there uh, and more. But um, I got involved in local politics um, because, well, I should say first, I hate politics. I've never liked <laughs> politics. I'm not good at office politics. Um, I'm I'm really too much of a rebel, and um, and I just want to get things done. I just want to get them done well. And so neighbors came to me because they knew I had a background in communication. They knew I had a background in in running my own company about the same size as this. And, and they felt like perhaps I was someone who could serve the community, serve my, my town. And I agreed with them. And so I, I spent four years on the planning commission, got to know that a little bit, then um, moved up to an elected position as a city council member and then was elected as mayor. So, so my, my, the point in serving was was to serve my community and um, to help do something that it needed to do with other people. It, the usually local positions are nonpartisan, and I, I take that to heart um, because you don't need to be a member of a party to solve local problems. You just need to be a member of your community right. and stepping up to do that. How I found the corruption initially, initially it was because people came to me and told me about it and said, you need to deal with this. And um, they were willing to step up and deal with it too. And that really was initially, but also as I served on various committees, which you do when you're on a, on a, in an elected position, I saw that things weren't being done as well as they should be done. And um, it, it worried me. Yeah. And um, 
but I didn't necessarily attribute it to corruption. I attributed it more perhaps to lack of training, lack of experience. And so that's one of the reasons I've written a couple of books on how to do it, so that at least that's not the excuse uh, for allowing things to go the way they shouldn't go. That, that's kind of on par with uh, with me and, and why I ran for mayor of, of my town recently. Um, as I looked into things, uh, no transparency, the idea of you know responsiveness, you know, as I did the door-to-door thing for a few months leading up to the election, the things that I was trying to get answers to were kind of vibing with everybody else in the town. So I figured, you know, I'll put my hat in the ring and, and see what I can do. And I got more and more frustrated as we got closer to election day because I tried to engage the other person. Um, I even set up Zoom chats every Friday leading up to it. She never engaged. We finally got the League of Women's Voters involved. And they finally responded to me, even though I sent them and my opponent emails and letters and correspondence saying, hey, let's get something together so we can chat and you know, let people make the, an informed decision. And she told them that she was too busy, and I ended, ultimately ended up losing the election, um, I believe, pretty much just because I was a independent, and um, she had the D next to her aiming. That, that's the only reason yeah. I think she won. She pretty much did nothing uh, outside of steal my platform, um, which I thought was pretty brazen. But you know, it, it's part that's of what, uh, that's what happens. It's it's part of my frustration with the whole uh, two party system. You know, I think uh, Hamilton was on point, and we're living his worst nightmare. And recently rereading um, Washington's farewell address, there there's so many things that he nailed squarely on the head. Um, it, it resonates yeah. exactly what we're going on that with now. So as your council person and eventually up to mayor, what actions were you able to take to make things better for your community? Well, I'll tell you what you're saying to me brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> um, I don't know. I've been having one of those days of, of just feeling uh, so frustrated that people are not able, for some reason, they're not able to to hear or see or want to understand what other people are thinking and saying and feeling it, it we have to be polarized we have to be in a political party we have to be at odds and the fact is when that's where we are as everybody's so frustrated right now um, this is what we get and it, it's really um it's really tough it is hard i I'm with you all the way on that. I, I share your frustration I, with I people. Think it's, I think it's a lot of um, disenfranchisement mm-hmm. um, and complacency. I think people are just apathetic to to the whole process. They don't they don't feel that they're really working, or things are you know politicians aren't working for them like they're supposed to be. And we're in an environment now where, like you said, where everything is so tribalized. There's the whole, mm. you know using the metaphor of war in regards to politics and public policy, which granted has been around since the sixties, but it, it, it creates that immediate adversarial position, which now you're on opposite side of the aisle as me and you're an enemy that that's just, it's like an immediate thing. And you start to dehumanize people, you know, 50 years, 60 years of, of this rhetoric. And now we've got, 
people in our government who, to me, have displayed they have little understanding of, of the Constitution, what their job is, let alone any common sense. But trying Completely. to get back to the, to the realm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I had a situation where I was running against a corrupt candidate. And in fact, he's the suicide in my book, Sleaze, Lies and Suicide. Got it. And, you know, if, if people had elected me instead of him, he, he might still be alive because he wouldn't have been allowed to be corrupt and he wouldn't have done the things that caused the FBI to raid his house and his office and, and caused him to be dead. And um, I'm not saying suicide because I, I'm not entirely convinced that it was, but he was dealing with some really bad folks and, um, and we deal with a lot of uh, lack of transparency. And, but I, anyway, I, I was running against this guy and I didn't expect to win, but I wanted to, my platform to be out there. And I think that's important. And it's one of the important things about, I think, being Americans in a democracy is that the minority does get heard. And when that minority speaks for long enough, sometimes their views begin to move right into the majority. And we've seen that time and again. And so when you run in the way you ran and in the way I ran and and you really are running to serve the interests of the people in your community, not your own interests, then eventually um, maybe people start to hear. But it takes a long, long time, and it's a painful process. And, and that's the other thing. Some people can't tolerate the time it takes or the pain it takes. Um, yeah. I, so, so how we did it, we actually had a – I actually um, had someone who organized an independent – debate and we advertised it in a local community and it went off really well we had a lot of people there probably 100 150 people in fairly small communities there the interesting thing was that that my opponent didn't show up but his trolls had been trolling for weeks beforehand and had become so abusive and so obscene in the things that they were saying about me that we had to have two plain closed sheriff's officers there because they were concerned yeah. about what could happen and um, I, I don't know where I'm going with all that, but that's what we did. <laughs> and, and it worked. I, I, we, were, we were heard, and I think we got the message through. And, of course, now everyone's saying, oh, she was right. <laughs> I think you, you nailed it in that the minority eventually bleeds into the uh, majority. I think the, one of the big problems, as I see it, is unfortunately that minority is so entrenched in ignorance right now. We need more reasoned and, and rational and logical minority to, to <laughs> rise up and, and, and shake away the stupidity. I think a lot of it, too, is we simply need to hear one another and not demonize one another. And if, I, if my, my energy is kind of low tonight and it's low because I had a conversation with a close friend who, who, says, who said to me, and I'll just put it out there, I'm a Democrat. And when I'm in office or any other time, I will hear anyone out. If you want to talk to me about something, I'd like to understand that. Right. And, um, of course, I'd like you to understand me, too. But, but if I'm listening to you, you, most people, in turn, will share that, that respect and do the same. And, um, and so because I've been willing to listen to everyone and because really my platform has nothing to do with which side of liberal you're on or which side of conservative you're on it has to do with um it has to do with representation right. it has to do with problem solving and um and so 
I get called Tea Party, which I just find really so funny, <laughs> actually, it's because it's just so. <laughs> in, in, if you're going to put Tea Party in a box, and and I, I didn't go here with him because there just uh, there wasn't much point. Sometimes there's no point, but if you're going to put Tea Party in a box, I would be pretty far away from it. Um, however, what I'll tell you is that the people I know who are Tea Party are left, right, and center. They just have a certain approach to things. And I don't know if that's true nationwide, but um, they're not monsters. And my favorite people to talk to if I get asked to speak is to Tea Party because they're in there, they're engaged, they want to know, and they want to make a difference. Well, that's all we're required to do, in my opinion. And so to sit on the sidelines and start putting people in boxes and calling them names and saying, if people think you're Tea Party because you think this and this is what the Tea Party thinks, I'm like, no, it's not. Says who? The you labeling, know? the labeling, yeah. the, the need to label people and, and put them, like you said, in a uh-huh. box is is uh-huh. definitely one of the things that we kind of need to get away from. Again, I think that attributes and really drives into the tribalism because you kind of mm-hmm. be part of a tribe. And while I was doing my door-to-door thing, there was a number of times where people were like, well, you know, Republican or Democrat? And I'm like, neither. And you're like, well, you have to be one. I'm like, no, I, I, I really don't. <laughs> and and the reason why is because there are some things that the left pushes that I wholeheartedly agree with. And there are things mm-hmm. that the right pushes that I wholeheartedly agree with. And there's a lot of nuance. I, I, you know, I, I live in, in my head as there's very few things that are finite and black and white and mm-hmm. an incredible spectrum of gray. And you need to really understand the facts of that particular instance because not everything is cookie cutter. Not every instance is cookie cutter. You know, whether we're talking about the police brutality, whether we're talking about, you know, healthcare and, and you know, some of the things that the Republicans are pushing, they're just completely asinine. You got to look at it and, and gather as much information, which again, trying to get the, to the truth of things nowadays is, is virtually impossible with all the, uh, with all the slanting. So it's, I think that adds to the apathy and the disenfranchisement. And I think that the word that kept coming to mind as you were saying that was context, context, context. And if if we're talking to one another, we begin to understand one another, we begin to understand context, and we can say, well, okay, this is really important to you, and I understand that. This is important to me. Now, how do we make these work together? Because we all live here together in this community. Um, and is that even something that you or I can influence? You know, right. the discussion I was having today was abortion. And and I've been pro-abortion all my life. And yet, because I was only pro, because I was okay with someone having a little bit different pro-abortion view, that made me tea party. Right. <laughs> well, you know, we're talking weeks. That's what we're talking. We're talking weeks. Right. And these are these aren't things that define right and wrong and and they aren't well at least in my opinion <laughs> differences i'm going to say differences of opinion don't define right and wrong necessarily in most cases right. and um and and that's where we really need to learn to just talk to one another and um realize yeah i get i come from a family of mostly republicans I think some of them have moved more to the middle now, and some of them maybe always were, <laughs> but I was the black sheep. I was the Democrat, and um, and that's okay, and it's okay that they're Republicans, and when I speak to Republicans, I say, I'm here because I love Republicans, because I do. My whole family are Republicans, <laughs> and so I don't understand uh, why 
we can't talk to one another. And when they say to me, uh, yeah, I speak at these meetings and they come up afterwards and they say, well, I would vote for you. And I say, I know after talking to you, I would vote for you. So what is this about? <laughs> it troubles me deeply. <laughs> Agreed. And, and I think it comes down to, you know, we spend a better part of my life, you know, two things you never talk about at dinner are religion and politics. And now mm -hmm. we've gotten to a point where, like you said, you can't even discuss things. You can't even, ha you can agree with somebody on nine out of 10 things, but the, the slightest little bit of deviation from their thought process, because they have so internalized their political ideology mm -hmm. that now you all of a sudden become the enemy. It's like, well, we just agreed mm -hmm. on everything, but this one little twist and now I'm the enemy. And, and I think that's really one of the bad things that we have going on today is the lack of being able to listen to somebody's side of an argument. And I think by and large with almost everything, you can agree to disagree. Um, mm -hmm. My problem with some of the people who use what we can agree to disagree is there are just some things that are objectively true that are irrefutable. And those are the things that some people try to argue and, and disagree. Well, I disagree with you. Well, but if you disagree, you're kind of on the wrong side of it. It's kind of clear cut. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had this thought, I had this feeling this morning that here's this person who I've been a friend with for many years and we agree, as you say, in fact, probably on more than 99% of the things. And I thought, am I going to lose a friend because I supported someone who he doesn't like? Is that what this is really about? How does this happen? And and I, I finally just said, I can't talk about this anymore with you. It's upsetting me. Um, let's go do some other things and let's agree to disagree, yeah. which he agreed to, thankfully. But it's um I I yeah, there's there's something off when we you know, and and then here's the other word that comes as you're talking about that is what you and I are talking about is democracy. What we're saying is we need to be free to have spirited discourse because without spirited discourse, you can't have relationship and you can't resolve issues and you can't get new, fresh ideas. Precisely. So it is essential if we want to live in a society where we, in a democratic society, we have got to talk. I think that the whole idea of spirited discourse is conflated with, the attack rhetoric where as soon as if you're disagreeing with me, well, now I've got to attack you. And that's where, you know, all the logical fallacies start coming into play. And until we can get to a ground where we can have civil spirited conversations mm -hmm. um, and discourse and, and true debates and discussions, I don't think anything's going to get fixed. And I think I would love to see presidential debates actually be a, a real debate um, mm -hmm. you know, with moderators that, that really hold each speaker accountable, have ways to make sure that they're held accountable. Um, and often in, in my community, the League of Women Voters is very good at that, but they're also scared, you know, as, as they were, it sound either scared or biased with you, but they don't want to jump in um, into anything that could possibly be confrontational or, um, controversial. Right. And um, if that's where we are, that's where we have to jump in. I, I spoke to one of the heads of the local chapter. She pretty much told me in no uncertain terms that I had no shot in hell because I didn't have a 
party behind me, um, which I thought was telling, um, but at the same time, brutally honest. I mean, I, I knew running as an independent in New Jersey, it's um, good say, for you. <laughs> to say it's an uphill battle is is an understatement. Um, I, I have actually been reached out to by both parties since the election, asking me to come under their win. They think I'd be a great candidate. But I've spent the last six years running for public office at all three levels, and I maintain my independence from a party because I just think that the biggest problems we face as a country are because of the two parties. I agree. And I think so did George Washington. Wasn't that one of the things he was talking about? He yeah. absolutely nailed that in his farewell address. You know, the, the He actually quite specifically, without putting names to it, put Trump in the presidency in yeah. 1784 when he wrote that. I was kind of hoping you would say that. <laughs> I, I don't, this doesn't normally happen to me, but it seems like every time you say something, a word comes to me. <laughs> I'm not normally like that, but it, I would say the word is, is not just civil discourse. It's simply respect. Civil. Yeah, absolutely. I'm totally for civil discourse. Um, that's I'm a communications major. Of course, that's what I advocate. However, respect is, is a huge part of that. And I think that's where it gets so painful to be putting people in boxes and dehumanizing them because we lose respect. Absolutely. For the other people. I think that's that's one of the biggest problems is is there's just a general lack of respect for authority for for others as an individual for others on you know the level of, of humanity. Being a retired police officer, I, I look at the the incidents involving police officers and things like that, and I don't ever want to judge an officer because I'm not in their shoes. I understand I've been through the training that they've been through. I understand how nuanced every situation can be. So I don't want to put myself in a position, but if there, you know, there, if I see that there's something that, you know, I was trained otherwise, or that I can see that was clearly wrong, I'm I'm going to call it out, but I'm not going to jump in front as soon as things happen and say, oh well, he was wrong or she was wrong or they were right or they were wrong. My response has always been is let's see what the facts bring us. Exactly, it has to be that. Yeah, we so absolutely have to look at both sides of anything. And I'm always surprised it's, you know, it's a best business practice. If someone complains, you don't fire the person they complained about. You bring them in, you talk with them about it, and you find out what really happened, or at least how they perceived it. And um, you bring in other people and you talk to them and you find out. Um, but jumping to conclusions without doing the research, and it's the same in local government, you may see something that looks corrupt and um, it may not be corrupt. It may just be that they're not communicating well, or it may just be that you don't understand the system. Um, and and so so often it's so important before we jump in to to seek well seek first to understand. That's that's my I I have two things I live by: one, seek first to understand, and two, win win or no deal. And if we could do those, we we'd be set. <laughs> right. I you know I had Franklin had a few of those too. Franklin. Uh, gave a speech, really, I think, almost on the eve or just after uh, the 4th of July, 1776, and the uh, Independence Day and um, the Declaration of Independence. And he said that he talked about not being opposed to paying public servants, but being opposed 
to it becoming a constant battle of public servants being paid more and the public wanting to pay them less, where we completely lose track of what's really most important, and that is the public trust. And it's it's not a job we do for money. And if we perceive it that way, then we failed the public trust. Right. And, and politics was never meant to be a career thing. And I think that's one of the other components to, you know, the, the demise of, of where things are right now is it was meant to be farmers coming off their farm for, you know, a couple of years doing their public service and then going back to the farms. And at some point it just became a career for people. And, you know, when the people, when you control your own paycheck, you know, yeah. There, there no that is a conflict of interest in the first degree. It doesn't get more conflicted than that. And, uh, and yeah, and then that stops younger people from coming in. It stops different viewpoints from coming in. It stops um, different, I don't want to say it stops women coming in. It, it stops every, it stops, it stops any kind of openness. It, yeah. and, and that's one reason why, although I, I didn't, I, I was appointed for four years and then I served for, 11 years, I guess, um, except for a brief period when I was campaigning. People say, well, are you going to run again? And I say, no, no, I didn't write the book to run. Um, and um, and they also ask if I'm going to do a, a follow-up, and I, I hope it's a good follow-up if I do. I hope it's because we've got the bad guys, but it might not be. But I think the point is, after 15 years, I've, I've already done five years more than I'd intended. I'd intended 10, and I stuck with it because of the corruption. I felt I could still do more, and we did still do more. But 15 years is enough. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I stepped off the farm. And what happens when you step off the farm is that you aren't providing for your retirement. You aren't, you know, you aren't earning very well right. when it's, it's local government is largely volunteer. And so I sacrificed 15 years of the last of the time in my life when I should have been providing for my pension. <laughs> and I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't get that pension that all those other uh, folks are getting. <laughs> the, and, and I and I'm not complaining. I made that choice. I chose to do that. But you can't you shouldn't choose to do that for a lifetime. You can't do that to yourself. Right. I mean, most people, because politics has turned into a career thing have you know they they start at the local level and they do opposite what i did they start at the local level and they they work up work up work up work up and truly make a career out of that and and i don't necessarily have a problem with that because you're as long as you're doing good you're making an impact on a, on a greater scale as you advance what i have a problem is the people who have been in you know federal level congress for 40 50 years you know they're so out of touch in my experience and listening to what they say of, of reality and, and entrenched in everything that, you know, they don't know how to function in the real world, mm-hmm. so to speak. And it's kind of like, um, you know, to use the example of, of somebody that's spent 30, 40 years in prison, they don't know how to function in the real world. They've, they've missed the growth of the world and, and society. They go and commit another crime just to get out of it and to go sit in their, their world that they're comfortable in that they know. It lost touch, and yeah. and that that's what I I hear what happens, and I I agree that I, I wouldn't I, I'm not applying a rule across the board that every single person who's been in government all their life is is out of touch or is a bad person, but as a rule, uh, I, I think it's not a good plan, and there in the cases would be rare where I would support that. <laughs> I, I agree. I I can't find it for the life of me now. I literally let, read it and I'm and it like blew my mind of how 
on point. Yes. That he said that one one person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've, re- I've read that speech too, and I've had exactly the same feelings about it. And um, that that it's phenomenal. Here were these young guys who had a concept and they were very well educated. They were Renaissance young men. Some of them though, but Washington wasn't that well educated. He came off the farm. He He, he didn't compete. Yeah. And um, although he, you know, obviously did well for himself because he had such ability, but, um, but they, they thought and they thought and they thought and they looked and they evaluated and they understood human nature and they looked at history and they came up with a system that really, really works with an experiment that's worked for many, many, for decades now yeah. and became the the world leader in that experiment. And we've lost touch with that, with these young men and their vision. But they they told us very clearly where we might be going and they were Absolutely right. A, a number of them. I mean, you've got Hamilton, Madison, uh, Washington, Jefferson, Thomas Paine, a lot of, like you said, visionaries of their time that, that almost more on point than Nostradamus has, has ever been. Um, and I think I found the, the oh, passage I was Absolutely. That's so interesting that you say that. My dad was a history major, and he used to talk to me about Nostradamus. Now, he was an Air Force navigator. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't a hocus pocus guy. <laughs> he didn't believe in that stuff. Yeah, as little I had a Ouija board. He said it was nonsense. But he said Nostradamus was shockingly accurate. Yeah. And yet, I, I I agree with you. Washington and Franklin, these guys were far more accurate. Yeah. At least when they, it's almost they they truly saw into the future of what could potentially happen because they were that in tune with with humanity. And, and, and human nature. Mm-hmm. So that they were passage, prophets. Yeah. The, the passage, I, I believe this is it. Um, all obstructions to the execution of the laws, all combinations of associations under whatever plausible character with real design to direct, control, counteract, or all the regular deliberation and action of the constituted authorities are destructive of this fundamental principle and the fatal tendency. They serve to organize faction to give it an artificial and extraordinary force to put in place of the delegated will of the nation, the will of a party, and of, often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community, and according to the alternative triumphs of different parties, to make public administration the mirror of the ill-concerted and in, incongruous projects of faction, that rather than the organ of consistent and wholesome plans digest from common counsel and modified by mutual interests. So say that in language that we can all understand. He was awfully smart. <laughs> I, I was trying to, to, to really refine it to art because that, that's one thing that, that's hard about reading stuff from back then is they were so verbose. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. I, I think it's a matter of you, you genuinely need to have people willing to do the will of the people. I mean, it, uh, mm-hmm. One line here: the will that, of the nation, and that people will come along who will try to pervert that. The lobbyists. He's talking about lobbyists. Yep. He's talking about small, uh, small groups gaining too much power because they're artful. He makes a comment of um, the indigent indignantly frown upon the first dawning of every attempt to alienate any portion of our country from the rest, or in, to enfeeble 
the scarce ties that now link together the various parts. Uh, this is actually the line I was looking for. It's easy to foresee that from different causes and from different quarters, much pains will be taken, many artif artifices employed to weaken in your minds the conviction of truth. As this is the point of your political fortress against the batteries of the internal and external enemies will be the most constantly and actively, often covertly and insidiously directed. It is of the infinite moment that you should properly estimate the immense value of our national union to your collective and individual happiness, indignantly frowning upon the first dawning. But he actually, there was another part in here where he specifically said there's going to be an individual that could come up, that could rise because they're in better financial position, basically. And you know, he basically, as I read it, I'm like, he's speaking specifically about Trump. He used his money and his influence to basically take control of the Republican Party. It's just, I was completely blown away. Um, and I think the whole point of where he was going with that is the people that are looking to serve need to, and this is going to sound poor choice of words, but need to be more pure to a degree, understanding the gravity and, and the power of their position and the control that they, they have over people to take that and, and do what some people have done and truly pervert, perverted the position in the system is, is truly insidious and evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, I think we have all kinds of issues with lobbying that are the same. Yeah. And, and you can get that on a small local level all the way up to a national level. And and, and it's an element of human nature um, to some degree, I think. And I've been looking at this. How do I – people ask me, well, then what do, what are we supposed to do about it? How do we fix it? And and I think part of it is 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 understanding. Oh, duh, we've been talking understanding. That's a silly <laughs> word. But, but what I mean is figuring out how it works and how people work. And once you know how people work, then you can find out what's the most effective way of working with those people. And um, psychologists have identified that there really are, people seem to have two different ways of looking at power. Power is either there to serve me if I have power, or if I have power, the power is there to serve others. And if we as um, citizens view power as, as individuals, if I view power as there to serve me, uh, then I'm probably going to look to elect someone who's going to serve me. Right. And um, then that's what we have, um, because they're going to be someone who believes that power is there to serve themselves. And so it, it really comes down to the individual again and again and again that it is we the people, we are the government, and and that idea of collective has sometimes become a bad word, but the reality is that's what democracy is. It's about the collective. And so it's, okay, then how do you find those people who understand that they are there to serve, not themselves, but the public trust? I think part of... Part of the problem is it's just the disingenuous disingenuousness of some of the people who are in our government right now, um, because they are they're they're clearly there for their benefit and their benefit only, and they'll do whatever they need to do to maintain maintain that position, to include ignore fact, have a completely detached connection to reality. The mental gymnastics that I see some of the, some people go through to support one particular person is both exhausting and impressive. 
because on one <laughs> hand you'll see them and a perfect example is the whole Chinese balloon incident all last week all you heard Republicans screaming about was you know Biden's horrible he needs to do something something should have been done come to find out after the military apparently had told him when he asked to have him shoot it down and the military's like back off we're, we're aware of it we're we're doing some stuff kind of thing and they took it down and then it came out well by the way under Trump's reign three of them passed over the United States but nobody heard a word and now it's oh well that's just deep state stuff that's just you know that's lies that's I'm covering up they're they're so separated from reality and and from objective truth and it's it, it, the sad thing is, is these are some incredibly incredibly powerful people in these positions that are trying to do some really horrific things that have no common sense, no rational reason. It's just, we're in the power, so we're going to do what we want. The upside is the mm -hmm. Senate's not going to pass anything that the House tries to push through that's ridiculous. So it's, it's interesting you say um, they're out of touch. And I think that a lot of us use rationalization to stay out of touch because that's what they're doing. They're rationalizing. Um, but I, I, I'm going to take that a step further and say that um, they're doing what Washington suggested, which is they're perverting um, the truth. It's false. It's what do you <laughs> that term we always use on sick out here and um, probably why I can't remember it. I don't want to remember it. But, you know, it's it's false news. It's yeah. it's um, the fake news it, or it, uh, taking, alternative. It's, facts. it's worse. Yeah. 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 It's not real. Um, it's simply their game plan and what what really kills me is they they're there's such as and i mentioned at the beginning and I, I hate using it i hate speaking in absolutes but i do just there um, you always hate speaking <laughs> <in absolutes. laughs> um but they they've there's a war on intellectualism and intelligence and, and that's my perception based off of you you see what's going on in florida what's going on in utah with what some of these hardcore Republican legislatures are pushing through about education reform, you know, what subjects teachers can and can't teach. And it's, it's all coming from a very disingenuous position that just makes it that much more horrible that when they come to defend it, when you throw object fact at them, they're, well, uh, that's not true. It is true. It might not be true in your head, in your world, but for the vast majority of people, that's that's the honest truth. And I think the only way we yeah. can really combat that is is trying to really push out as much objective fact as, as we can, which again, in this day and age where everybody has such a distrust in, in any source of media, unless it comes from their little echo chamber, it it's going to be hard to, to really fix things because you have people that are just so entrenched in stupidity and mm -hmm. and ignorance that they like dwelling in there they're just it's like their comfy comfortable spot god forbid to get a little uncomfortable and, and learn something and enlighten yourself and, and you know learn about the, the people and environment around you to make it a better environment for everybody and it's they say socialism is this bad thing and it's really it's, it's not socialism in and of itself has a lot of good concepts and we have socialistic <laughs> we properties. have a lot of socialism in this country and and the people that you are know, fighting against it benefit from it. Lifetime lifetime job in politics. That's socialism. Yeah. <laughs> through yeah. and through. Yep. 
It's through and through socialism in the sense that from cradle to grave, they're covered by the government and maybe not from cradle to grave. What, what it turns out to be locally a lot of times is, is from their first government job and then their children's cradle until they're in the, until the parents are in the grave. Who's so, you know, it's, and, it's, and name it's salary for life. And, 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 you know, I think that there are people, um, I've had, I remember my mother telling me that she felt and she was a Republican, but she felt that our, um, our, our um, military was socialized. I'm fine with that. And I think she was too. Um, if you're going to go out and put your life on the line, I'm going to support you and your family for the rest of your life because you did, because you looked after mine. Right. I'm good. Yeah. Um, however, uh, if you're gonna, you know, be a city manager and retire at 55 and live to 95, and I'm going to pay you full salary, and then the, every 10 years, the guy who comes after you, I'm going to be paying six city managers. That nobody gets that. Right. That's perverse. There's, I I belong to a an organization uh, called Leap, which is Law Enforcement Action Partnership, and it's it's really about pushing law enforcement reform. There are a lot of reforms that need to be put in place that could really fix things uh, politically, socioeconomically, law enforcement-wise, in, in every facet. But the problem is, is to get these reforms put into play, it affects the people that have to put them into play. So it's a matter of getting people yes. that, that understand that there is an end game and be willing mm-hmm. to be part of that end game. You know, the, the vast amount of hypocrisy as you just pointed out, you know, being a career politician is effectively a form of socialism. And and you have a core of people that are screaming and ranting against socialism, but they're benefiting explicitly from socialism. What you're talking about, and, and I talk about it, I think I've talked about it in both of my books, is, and I'm not, I, I like city managers. Uh, and 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 I will say, I like police officers. Most of the city managers, firefighters, police officers, city staff I've worked with have been wonderful. I, I I'm honestly, as a, as an employer, and not as their employer, but has having been an employer, I would be it would be an honor to work with any of them. And so I, it, it, what I am saying has nothing to do with whether I like them or not. It has to do with what what we can with with where our money is going and how we're using it, and and about fairness. Right and um, equity and but I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but I I the thing is that it's going to be the city managers who solve it. They're the experts. They're the ones we rely on and we need most to right. solve this for us. And it's it is going to require a sacrifice on their part. It's going to require them to look to the collective good rather than their personal good. You, you kind of nailed it. That's uh, what you're saying. And they are that there's there's differences between local government, state government, and federal mm-hmm. government. Big and, differences. And at my personal belief is you you shouldn't have just two parties. I mean, what I think one thing that one truth that falls on deaf ears and and out of the realm of people's brain cavities is the fact that our government is controlled by two private organizations: the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are private organizations that have Mm -hmm. absolute control over the government. They're monopolies. (laughs) The only time they really work together is when they're fucking everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry for the bluntness. (laughs) But when you get down to the local level, it should be completely nonpartisan. You don't need to have a party because 
and and it came up while going door to door. Well, you know, what do you think about abortion? What do you think about this? It's like that's beyond my game plan. My game plan is to do what's in the best interest of our Heightstown borough, our small little barely one and a half square mile borough. It's to do what needs to be done to control our spending, make it enjoyable, make it a destination spot. I mean, the big pitch for me for Heightstown is we're 45 minutes from New York City. We're 45 minutes from Philadelphia. We're 45 minutes from the shore. You know, we've we've got everything at our fingertips. And to make that a, a more of a destination spot and, and develop and, and revitalize our downtown, that was my goal. That my goal was to make it a place for people to be to see as a destination. And mm-hmm. when people are like, well, you know, well, what are you going to do with this? And I, you know, Pelosi needs to go. I'm like, I don't care. It, it, it doesn't have an impact on me being able to do my job as mayor. And it, it, and lo- at a local level, we do not, um, we have, we really have no say in how abortion goes or doesn't go. It's not a local right. level decision. Right. And so, um, yes, you can argue and they do argue, well, yeah, but you might move up the line and then what you think matters. And well, there's some truth to that. And, um, and most of us don't, <laughs> most of us don't move up the line. And so y- you've got to work within your, with what's in your jurisdiction. Agreed. I think we need, I think a lot of that falls on, on just the lack of civics understanding. Do you what happened to civics yes. being taught in school? It was part of social studies. You know, I remember being taught about you know the revolutionary era and then you know, moving through and understanding what government function was. I mean, who, at least my age or, or a little older, maybe a little younger, who doesn't remember Schoolhouse Rock <laughs> and and all the the fun ways that they that we learned things back then? You know, you, you now you get shows like the Teletubbies and, and Barney. I, I had a, a good experience the other day because for the most part, whenever I ask someone, did you learn about local government and civics? The answer is no. Uh, what do you mean? I don't even remember how, I don't even remember having a civics class. And one of my friends went to high school in Long Beach, California, a very, a, quite a ra- racially mixed town, a port town. And, um, and, and of course that's how she learned not to be racist because Everybody was different. She was Russian. They were this. Everybody was. And so they were fortunate. They got along. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but they they got to go pretend to be the mayor for a day. Their civics class took them to City Hall and told them how to do it. That's how we need to be doing it. And, and Immersion. It, I, you know, I, I want to learn the structure of the government, but the structure is there to protect the vision and the dream. And And so I would like everybody to understand why the structure is there not the structure yes but but what's the importance of it why do we have a city council meeting um where we first get a report and then we ask the questions and then the public speaks and then we deliberate and then we vote but we don't make up our minds until we have all that information we seek first to understand and then win win or no deal well there's always somewhat of a loser but if they had a voice there was a win there too, and um, protecting the minority. And uh, we don't teach that. We don't teach that that's transparency, that's representing, that's best practice. And it's there because it's part of a dream and a vision that um, works really well when we go with it. I would love to create a curriculum that, as you said, pointed out, it, it teaches the framework and the structure of government, but it also teaches and immerses them in the nuance of it. 
at all levels mm-hmm. because face it, people need to understand every component. They need to understand where their municipal taxes go and, and why they're, yeah. why there's a difference in, in this tax and this tax. and Because over a lifetime, the average individual will spend $500,000 in taxes. And think of it, is there any other place that you would ever give five hundred grand to and not pay attention to how they managed it? Yeah. And let anybody do it and say, oh, well, you know, that's politics as usual. Well, well, wait a minute. That's your money. That's providing for your police service, your fire service, your security, your uh, safety net when, you know, if, you, if your place burns down, all of that, well, maybe not burns down, but there's a forest fire, all of those things. And, and yet we're paying no attention to it. <laughs> I, I, I have a couple pet peeves that are kind of local, state, and federal. And one of that is is EMS. EMS is is, is a mess nationally. And it, it is part of the healthcare system. But most states have it on law that you have to have police services and fire services. So have EMS to. is emergency medical services. The ambulances. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's not required in most states or any state that I'm aware of to provide a ambulance service for anybody. It generally, years ago, when I started, was all volunteer. And then it slowly became, some towns thought that it was a good idea. Well, we can guarantee that we can get an ambulance out if we hire people ourselves and have a little control over it. Um, and some towns have done that very well, and other towns have done absolutely horrible. And then you have these huge medical conglomerates and these hospital coalitions that come in and they, they try and get up as much property and, and space and areas they can. And it's the providers that are suffering for it. They get paid dirt. They get treated like shit. I, I have a friend who is currently going through something where, and something happened on a call by all accounts, they did nothing wrong. It was more on a doctor and they've been suspended for almost two months now. And it, it, as, as I'm hearing more information about the investigations going on, it's really a, half-assed clown show investigation. They're not talking to anybody that they really need to be talking to. And they just keep on stringing them along. And it's just like, you have this situation where my experience is ambulances go everywhere a fire truck goes. And we go more often than fire trucks go. So if anything should be a guaranteed service, having an ambulance, it's kind of one of them. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're just talking plain statistics. And odds, and you're you're talking EMS is more relevant. And I, I've tried to, I always try to 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 look at the things that I see as issues from a objective, realistic perspective, and try and say, well, if you have this, and this is more than that, then why shouldn't we do that? I have lots of other stuff I can rant on, um, but that's for another another time. Yeah, yeah, but it, I mean, what it means is, is if we were to, if we were to just look at it purely from a business, and very, uh, government isn't business, but it is a business, right. and, and, and to run it well, the many, many, many other principles, except for transparency, are really the same, and so if you just look at that, you know, let's, I always say Machiavellian, because he actually had some really brilliant ideas, he wasn't just what we consider a bad guy sometimes, yeah. <laughs> but you just say, okay, we've got this much money and these are the tasks that need to be done. And actually these guys are doing, 
you know, these two guys are having to do this guy's task. Let's let these guys do what they do and put them here. And occasionally they're going to overlap. Okay. Then the EMS can ask for the overlap, can ask for help, call the police, call the fire, whatever, or back up, just back up. But yeah, it makes total sense. Um, But it means defunding. Oops. <laughs> it means defunding the police. It means it means reducing their tasks. Right. It means reducing the tasks of the fire department. And then, am, am I right on that? I think it's a little more nuanced than that. Um, because mm-hmm. in New Jersey, where, where I'm at, police go to every call just because you never know what they're going to walk into. You never know, even as an EMT, you never know what we're going to walk into. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are diabetics who become pretty violent. And when I was a police officer, there was times where I've had to help out the ambulance crew because that person was uncontrollable. There are some agencies in the area where I live that have both firefighters and EMTs that roll out the same time just so they have an ambulance and extra set of hands going out. But I think there there are some things that are looked upon as line items that shouldn't ever be looked at as line items. And law enforcement, I think, is one of them because – from my perspective, as I th- see things, there's a lot of talk of, you know, defunding the police and, you know, well, better training. Well, in my experience, getting training was kind of one of the hardest things to do because you had to give them justification to how that training was going to benefit them the, and our town. And there is some training that, yeah, absolutely, I totally agree. You should get the training that's going to benefit your town. But there are going to be things that are going to benefit the officer not just the town. It might benefit the officer more than the town. And when you look at things, the, the budgets would, that they would cut, they'd start with the peripherals. Training. And training was one of them. I happen to think, from my own experience and, and what I've seen, New Jersey has the best trained officers, closely behind California, because I think we had this reciprocity, be, reciprocity thing going a little while ago, mm-hmm. where if you, got, if you were a trained police officer in New Jersey, you could, didn't have to go back through academy in, in California. Wow. Um, I don't know if that still exists. I'm not sure if that actually was a thing or if that still exists, but you know, that's good. We, I I think that's a win-win. Yeah. (laughs) I I think there are things that we can do to improve how we train the police officers. And this is coming from somebody who taught at a police academy for a number of years. So I understand what the curriculum is, but at the same time, you have people that are making these decisions on, what should happen and how law enforcement should do their job that have no clue or concept of, of laws or human nature or really care. They just have an agenda and a narrative that they want to push and damn everything else. So until we so, get- yeah, and I think it's very easy to come in as I just did and say, oh yeah, A, B, therefore C. Right. Well, as you say, it's not as simple as that. And, it, thank God you didn't put me in charge of doing that. <laughs> well, maybe it would have been all right because I would have listened to you right. first. <laughs> That's the big. I would have saw first to understand, but um, so it probably would have been good. It's easy to 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 come from that position and then uh, and then need to hear more. Right. I did want to ask you one thing on that 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 came to mind, and I know one of the things that I hear is that it's really difficult for police officers to deal many times with homeless individuals or to deal with any kind of, uh, or I'm not going to say homeless, I'm going to say transient, because there really is a huge distinction in in our community anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, some people choose to be transient. Some people are homeless for a short period and would like a home. Right. Mo- most people would like a home. and um, uh, but But a lot of times 
I, get, I think it's 95% of the time there with, with transients or homelessness, you have an issue of addiction or you have an issue of mental health or both. Right. And um, that I hear from police officers, we're not trained in mental health. That's not what we do. That's not what we're, and, and so I'm wondering if that is a place that EMTs could step in. So in, in my experience, it's, it's hard to say that it's hard to understand what we might be able to do other than to get people the right resources. And that, I think that falls, comes from me as a police officer and as an EMT. And as you pointed out, there are people who just are happy not living in a house and, and happy living outdoors and, and happy being transient, homeless, whatever term you want to use. And there are people who are want to fix that, but you can't fix somebody unless they want to be fixed. So a mm -hmm. lot of the times that, you know, officers and, and people interact with the transient community, it, there's this misunderstanding in it, it, of why they're there. You know, like you said, I, I do believe a large majority of them are there for mental health reasons, which that's a whole nother ballgame to, to try and, and fix and, and address. And addiction, which again, is another whole nother ballgame because it, it is both a combination of a mental disorder, but it's also a an illness disease so you got to have the smarter people far smarter than me and that understand things far better than i do kind of figure out a way that you can treat them that yeah the thing is is people look for a blanket solution for things and that just doesn't exist you know, to use something and i'm thinking not so much as emts to solve a homelessness problem i mean yes resources are critical because you got to do something sometimes i'm thinking more in terms of in the situation of a call out with a mental health crisis very, far too often you hear that it ends up with you know people getting shot because they're in a mental health crisis and they are a danger to themselves and others and you know there's the judgments calls have to be made there that's why that's the one where i hear that the police would would rather would would rather i that they feel they're not trained to deal with mental health crises and they would like to have someone trained to deal with mental health crises available there. I, I'll, I'll give a little pushback from them, in my experience, saying that they would rather have somebody else be brought into the situation because for me as a cop, as little people involved in the situation, the better. I think it's more of a matter of the people making decisions and watching things through the microscope not being so judgmental about the actions that were taken, as long as they're actions that were taken by a reasonable person. When I was in the academy, some of the things that really stuck in my head were the totality of the circumstances and, you know, to paraphrase, would a reasonable person do the same thing in this situation? So I think if, I think a lot of cops are hesitant to, to act in some capacities because they're afraid of the repercussions. And it just gets further exacerbated by the fact that you have the lack of respect, you know, the people that are immediately starting, I don't want to say confrontations, um, interactions off on a bad foot because in, you know, an officer could just be legitimately doing their, their job. Person's having a bad day and immediately, the, well, you're pulling me over because I'm this or I, I didn't do anything wrong and I don't have to give you anything. Well, if, if the officer stops you, you have a lawful, duty, which when you sign for your license, it, you're acknowledging this, to give them your license, identify who you are. You know, there's a, a big misunderstanding that if I put handcuffs on somebody, I don't have to read them the Miranda rights. Huh. 
there, there's only certain times where Miranda is required, which is interrogation and you know, questioning. And if I am asking you some very general, broad questions, you know, there's investigative detention. There's times where I've responded to people fighting and, you know, we come in, we separate them, we handcuff them, we sit them down and talk to them, rash things out, handcuffs come off and people go their way. I think TV and, and movies have kind of created this, this huge misunderstanding of what law enforcement actually is. Yeah. I, I think that there's this whole, and I blame lawmakers for this, this adversarial relationship between law enforcement and the civilians because when things break bad, it's initiated off an officer generally usually trying to affect a law, do a lawful act. But people get angry because the cops enforcing the law. Well, that's like getting mad at a hammer because you missed the nail and put a hole in the sheetrock. So we need to start getting away from this adversarial relationship that law enforcement has with citizens mm -hmm. and, and go back to more of that community policing idea where, you know, you go back years ago in New York city, the cop knew everybody, everybody knew the cop, If there was a problem. Hey, this so-and-so is messing up. Go stick your foot in his ass. And, and it was, it was more community based. And now that, you know, we got far more densely populated, it's a bigger problem. Everybody has their own issues. It's a completely different world, obviously. I think we need to kind of rein things back into what it is to be a human again and, and treat others with civility and, and yeah. humanity and, and see others as humanity. And like you said at the very beginning of this, when we talk to others to, to listen to what they're saying, not just be, you know, thinking about what my next argument and my next comeback is going to be, or what insult I can swing at you or, or what stupid nonsense I can throw out to counter whatever you're saying. If, if we can come back together as, as humans and, and see each other as, as humans <laughs> and talk to each other and listen and, and learn from each other, it would be a step in the right direction. So I want to go back to the, um, to the issue of EMTs and mental health crises again, mm -hmm. um, because, and, and I, I appreciate everything you said, because I haven't, um, you have a perspective that I don't have and an experience that I'm and doing something that I really respect. And I, where I'm coming from on that is, I'm not saying bring a whole lot of people in. I'm not saying right. call the police and the EMT. I'm saying that the police are saying, if it's a mental health crisis, send a mental health expert rather than the police. So in, in, in our area, we EMT have that. EMT fulfill that potential. We do have that. And there's, there's times where we get called out for a psychiatric emergency. Uh, again, it, to me, it falls on on training. New Jersey used to have a training fund that, volunteers could kind of tap into to get the various strings that we needed, whether it was the stuff that we are required to do to maintain our certification or just, you know, extra training, different, different philosophies and on different techniques. The hard part is, is developing a, a, a training that it's really going to be able to be effective in most situations because every situation is different. So while we are dispatched to psychiatric emergencies, we are able to do what we can and, and help people. And, you know, if need be, we can restrain them to get them to a facility. You know, we look out for the, we're trained in, in, in the key phrases and some things, indicators to look for that if somebody is clearly a, a danger to themselves or others that we mm -hmm. can, we can kind of not necessarily take custody of, them, but we can get them to a facility 
against their wishes. Um, but it all comes back to training, whether we're talking about law enforcement or EMS or fire or whatever, it all comes down to training. And the question is, is who designs the training? And I think a lot of it does come back to, you know, who's looking at what's being done after the fact, because you have people that just don't understand the complexities of things that are making decisions on, you know, punishments and, and otherwise and making judgment decisions that aren't based in, in fact, a reality of, of what actually occurred and what went down, but in what suits their narrative and their, their whatever they're advocating for. So in, until we can look at things and go, you know, if somebody's having a mental breakdown and everybody agrees across the board, that if somebody's having a mental breakdown and, and a clearly a danger to themselves, that they need to be taken to a facility. And by and large, I believe that is the case in most plots. Um, but I think police officers are, again, it's a lack of wanting to take the steps necessary sometimes because they're afraid of the repercussions, because they're hmm, afraid of right. the optics. You know, there are some times where no matter what way you paint it, the optics are just going to look bad, but objectively it was the best way to handle the situation yeah that's another thought that came to mind as you were talking earlier that um sometimes you can't win sometimes you simply can't beat it right. sometimes you're going to come up into a situation that no matter what you do it's not going to work out well and uh you can do the best you can in the circumstances uh, but it's not always a win right and about managing uh, managing the situations you manage it and yeah yeah. You kind of touched on it earlier about um, you know, understanding humanity and, and human nature. And I, I think that's that's kind of one of the knocks that I, I go after the Democrats for on some things is I think everybody that has a rational thought agrees we need to, to figure out how to, to decrease gun violence. But I think mm -hmm. the ways that I hear, the solutions that I hear come out of the Democrat side is more about trying to legislate away a human instinct. Violence is a human instinct. It's, it's, it's just a part of humanity. Good, bad, or indifferent. Gun violence is just a small subsect of that. If somebody wants to be violent, they're going to be violent by some capacity. So the, the narrative that they're pushing is to, we need to get rid of gun violence. You, you can't have a zero sum for that. that that's just not going to ever happen. So you need to shift the perspective and go, what can we do to make it less likely for these things to occur? Tighten up background checks. You know, if somebody wants to own a gun and uh, have them prove it, you have to take a written test and a, you do a pass a, a practical test to get a license. Why not do that with guns? To me, that, that, that to me is, is logical. Yeah. You, know, you have to show your, your ability to know the, how to use your gun. It, it, to me, that that's just common sense to me. That might just be because I know how to use a gun because I was trained how to use a gun as a police officer. But to me, if you want to take the additional responsibility of, of carrying a gun, which I think that's something that a lot of people it's lost on, is that is an incredible amount of responsibility. It's, it is. You need to be able yeah. to give up some of the freedom, so to speak, which I think is just an absurd thing. It's, it's about being responsible for yourself and others. Yes, it, it, it cuts both ways. One of the things that um, 
seems to me to, and again, there, there's no, this is not simple. I know it's not simple, but you know, we've been able to create an internet and a network that, that, that communicates across the world, around the world. And it seems to me that one of the real, one of the factors affecting it is that we have a lot of little isolated systems that don't talk to one another. And so things slip through. If we were, if we could, if our, if our systems would talk to one another, uh, you all who are having to be out there at the front end of dealing with the crises would have access to better, faster information. And you'd know when someone should not be having a gun, when their gun should be removed. Um, I mean, it doesn't stop the whole criminal element. And I, I have to say, I, I lived in, um, I lived in Great Britain for 20 years and people had rifles, <laughs> you know, they hunted uh, they went, went after pheasants and deer and, and um, they had rifles, uh, but people very rarely had, had handguns. And of course the police didn't usually carry guns yeah. and they were, because they were, co- they were community policing. They, they had a great concept on that, you know, the Bobby right. with it, he had a baton <laughs> And he could call in reinforcements, but um, I guess I guess where I'm going with that is that I, I, I can see both sides of those arguments. If the guns aren't there, people don't get shot. Agreed. It's they get stabbed. Agreed. Um, but that's <laughs> less. Uh, but a gun's easier to use. It's easier to shoot someone than it is to stab someone. Precisely. Yeah, and so um, I can see both sides of that, and and so I I find myself kind of. I, I, having lived in Britain for so long, I kind of have this cringe factor with guns. Although I, I always really enjoyed shooting because I was I have really good aim. It was fun. I always <laughs> got it. Yeah. So I can see both sides of that, but it seems to me that that a practical solution is simply making the systems talk to each other right. and allow or and allowing the systems to talk to one another. Uh, that and that's the that's the key is, you know, to break unpack a couple of things you just said. When it comes to systems talking to each other, you have still states that are running opera antiquated systems. I mean, New Jersey has some state government systems that are running on 1970s computer software. And it's so antiquated, it can't take the data from there that's constantly being updated with new stuff and migrate it to a new system without spending an obscene amount of money to do that. On on the other end of... of and this is where my Republicans are going to get mad at me. I think we've gotten so far beyond what the actual intent of the Second Amendment was. It kind of needs to be rephrased, rewritten, Mm -hmm. and added. I mean, Jefferson said that we should have a a review, basically, of the Constitution every 19 years and kind of rewrite and tweak things. Interesting. Well, you know, I I appreciate you saying that because if if we're – going on the premise that we need to go back to what really were the original intents? What, what, what was the vision? Um, uh, what were the thoughts about how to do it right? If you're going to do that uh, and have integrity, then you do have to take a look at that from the gun situation as well. You, right. you know, that that's integrity. You have to look at, We've evolved. You, gotta look at one and you can't say do this and only do it for some things. Right. You've got to be consistent. Um, so I, I respect Flexible. that and I appreciate that. And open-minded. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've, Look at the things Open that we've changed to the amendments we've added to it. We've eliminated slavery. We've given women and, and others, everybody other than just men, the right to vote, which that was something that was debated when the Constitution was written. Um, mm-hmm. 
one of the problems, and, and, and I would love to know what your dad's thought processes on this. I tend to view history from a reflective point going, that was good. That's a good thing to carry. That's a good tradition to carry on or, or, or have. That was really bad. Let's not do that again. But can we kind of see why they got there and know why they did that so we know not to do that again? And I think there's this big trend. And I think that the term I heard today was um, presentism is this new idea of judging the past on our current belief structure and, and, and thought processes, which to me is just so flawed at its core. There's no context. <laughs> exactly. It, it, they're, they're, you lose all the context. And, and, and when you have people that are looking at history at the bad, just and just looking at the bad things, not looking at all the good things that have come out of it, looking at all the good that has come out of our Constitution, they just look, oh, well, the founding fathers are slave owners. Well, not all of them. And some mm -hmm. of them are quite outspoken against it. Um, and some of them freed their slaves. Washington freed his slaves. Right. Yeah. Shortly after the, the revolution was over. Um, but the, the idea to look at history and go, well, they're just all bad because they did bad things. Well, history is full of bad people doing bad things. <laughs> we still have people doing bad things and having bad people. So it's, it's, it's like you said, context and, and to look at history and learn from it. I believe the phrase is, yeah. we don't uh, learn from history, we're doomed to repeat it. So. So true. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, one thing that came to me when I, I, I worked with probably 200 different people who, who had come to me talking about corruption and we, we worked together to route it out. Cause it takes, it takes a village and it takes a crowd a lot of times to get an, to get to be heard mm -hmm. and um and it was it was successful in in many ways but uh when i wrote the book of course i i was so immersed in the corruption side of it um that it, it it's it takes you down yeah. <laughs> it's, it's tough and I, I, you know who am i to tell you that you're a police officer you get that and, or have been but i i when i had my launch party and I didn't expect anyone to come to my house. I opened my home, but it was still kind of COVID time a little bit. And so I didn't expect anyone to come because they're all old like me. Well, they're not old, but many of them are. And some of them can't get up my stairs anymore. <laughs> uh, you know, it was 10 years ago and uh, 15 years ago. But um, the thing that struck me of all the people there, and they were completely different. We had Trump supporters. We had, you know, different colors, different religions, different beliefs, and definitely different politics. But we had one thing in common. We wanted honest government. We just wanted honest government. And so we put the rest of it aside, and we grew to love one another. And when everybody came together, there were probably 50 people in my house, and, and it still brings me to tears, they were hugging each other. And I realized... There are a lot more good people than there are bad people. And so if what we can do is inform the good people, because they are the majority, the ones who are driving us crazy are probably the minority. <laughs> and we're giving them too much voice per George Washington. They have too much voice. Yeah. And but But the thing that struck me is that actually there were a lot more good people than bad people. And that people who were incredibly different, who would never expect to speak with, to one another, could love one another. Yeah. It set that aside. I, I think you nailed it in that they came together and saw each other as, as humans, just mm -hmm. simple, as humans. And I think that there's the vast majority of, of 
well-intended, good-hearted people who generally think counter to the, the current narratives going on, but they're afraid to speak up because they see what happens when you speak up. If you try to rock the boat, you get hit with cannons. And until the cannons of stupidity are destroyed, you're going to have the, the people that really want to do something and, and put themselves out there to run for policy or politics. They're not going to do it because they see how much of a cesspool it's become. You know, the, the attacks on individuals instead of saying, instead of attacking another person's or your, your, your opponent's positions, they attack them and, and their character and it becomes a character assassination as opposed to a, a philosophical discussion. And mm -hmm. until, like we've said a few times, until we can interact on a human level, we're just, it's just going to be the circus sideshow. And that's our problem to solve because it is our government. It was set up for us to be we the people. It was set up for us to hold it accountable, um, not just to vote, but to actually show up and and. Nobody can represent you if you don't tell them how you'd like to be represented. Right. If they're good, bad, or indifferent, if you don't go along and say, here's what we want, and if you do it in numbers, it's easier. <laughs> but if you don't, you know, if you don't express what you want, if you don't let people know how it is on your street, then um, then the best of representatives can't represent you either because right. they don't know. You right. didn't tell them. And, the, and it is our government. It's our job. We've got to fix it. I think that uh, – some, a comment that I made to my kid the other day because my youngest and I have been kind of getting more and more political in our conversations. I, I forget the context that it came out of, but I made the comment of people need to understand that you're not going to have, I think I was trying to paraphrase or, or bring it to solutions, but I was talking about the code vaccine specifically. I said, you're not going to have a vaccine that works 100% on 100% of the population with zero side effects. That's just not a reality. That's the goal. Yeah. That's the objective. But it's a numbers it, it'll never be the reality. And that's with every solution. You need to do what's going to do in the best possible good with the least negative. And that's kind of the, the way you got to go. It's a balance. It's an issue of balance. How do you do that balance? And, and, and when we elect people, we put them in a really difficult position to figure out that balance on our behalf. Balance, um, I think, requires compromise when we talk politics. And, and mm -hmm. there is no compromise mm -hmm. anymore. People think it, it, right. it, and if you have the collective view that I'm in power to serve the community, then you can make those judgment calls better. Right. Not you don't always get it right, but you can do it better. And and when you are electing people from a position, from a collective position, as opposed to a self-centered position, and I, and I think maybe that's what's up with politics. It is about it's about. What am I going to get? Do they agree with me? It's not about what's best for the community. Um, when you get to parties, when you get to parties, and that's the problem. The, the guy I work with made a very good point. He goes, the elected officials should do what 50 from, at least 51% of the population that they represent once, regardless if they agree with it or not. They can say, look, mm -hmm. I don't agree with this, but my constituents, 52% of them want this, so that's what I'm pushing. I represent them. I don't personally mm -hmm. believe it, but that's what they want, so that's what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. And I think it's there's too many people in our current system that are, well, this is what I want and that's what I'm going to do. And I don't care what anybody else thinks. I mean, that, that's kind of clear when you talk about the abortion thing, the, the, I think the overwhelming majority of people have very clearly said, 
an abortion is not my decision. It's not my choice. Mm -hmm. It should be left up to a woman and her doctor and whoever else she deems fit and, and leave it at that. But you have people in politics who just say, nope, abortion is killing and no matter what, shouldn't happen. I mean, the more absurd responses to that. But I've um, been chatting your ear off for almost an hour and a half now, so... I'm oh, going to wow. say, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say, where can people find your books, find you, get in touch with you? All that fun stuff. Uh, the easy, all of my books are on Amazon. So if you Google happiest corruption, that's easy to remember. Happiest corruption. Even if you just Google it, you're going to find where you can find it. Amazon's probably the easiest. So you can go to Amazon and search happiest corruption and you'll find uh, city council 101. Insider's Guide for New Council Members, you'll find The Happiest Corruption, which was the story of the corruption. And then um, also, if you go to my website, debbiepeterson.com, D-E-B-B-I-E-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N.com, you get links to everything. And I do have an online course, which is called Double Dias, Adventures in Local Government. And that is addressed to both council members and to we the people uh, to tell us how to work better together. And uh, it's, it, it'll fast track it. it. It took me years, really literally years, to learn how the system works and why it works that way because you don't really get taught. Right. There's no job description. And um, so if you, if you really do want to do it well and uh, do it quickly and figure it out and not waste your time, uh, take that online course. And I've got it on for $97. A lot of times this course is sold for about two ninety seven. That was or three ninety seven, and I said no, I want it to be accessible. <laughs> so I want everybody to be able to do this. It's important. I'm not about making money. I'm about educating, <laughs> helping everybody else to figure out how the money should be spent. <laughs> so anyway, you can link to there from my website, debbiepeterson.com. I will make sure all that information is in the show notes. So now for the fun part. After all the fun, serious conversation we've had, my uh, few questions of what would you rather? First one being. Which would you rather, climb Jack's beanstalk or fix Humpty Dumpty's crack shell? Climb Jack's beanstalk. <laughs> I agree. I, I don't have problems cleaning up messes, but I, I, I'm more inclined to go play up in a castle somewhere in the clouds. It's fun to climb a beanstalk. Yeah, picking like up a, a, mess, a gross mess. That's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Question two. Would you rather fight Moby Dick or Jaws? Moby Dick, because he doesn't have such sharp teeth. <laughs> Bigger... Maybe more easily to evade, but yeah, probably. I think I think that would be. Uh, I think I'd go with that answer too, just because it seems to be the safest bet as opposed to a giant. I'd rather be swallowed by a whale than bit by a shark. <laughs> yeah, you might survive the shark bite, but it's going to be painful. <laughs> uh, let's see. Would you rather think too much or think too little? Honestly, right now, I'd rather think too little. <laughs> I always think too much, so I would love to take time off and think a little less. <laughs> uh, and the last one. Uh, would you rather boycott the government or a company for better working conditions? <laughs> oh, boy. I don't know. I've done both. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would boycott the company. I think that might have a better chance of being effective. Oh, it would be easier. Yeah. Your odds are higher. And if you boycott the co company, you'll get some government, you might get some government support doing it too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've had clearly a, a very enjoyable time chatting with you. Probably could keep on chatting yeah, for another likewise. couple hours. So maybe I have to schedule this to do this again in the future. But I'm happy uh, to do that. I thank you for your time and I will let you go. 
Thank you. Good night. It's lovely to meet you in person. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.